Sorry, but not sorry if that made you sick, by the way. You should know what you signed up for. The name of this episode is The Cannibal Plateau. popular history of unpopular things, a mostly scripted podcast that makes history more fun and accessible. My kind of history is the unpopular stuff. Death, disease, destruction. I like learning about all things bloody, gross, mysterious, and weird. So, hey, listen, you decided to open up a podcast episode called The Cannibal Plateau. So congratulations. You are as messed up as I am. It's been a hot minute since I managed to shoehorn cannibalism into an episode, so I figured, why not just straight up do a cannibalism episode? So that's what we're doing today. Buckle up. But before we begin, I would like to plug my Patreon. I know, I know, I bet you're rolling your eyes right now, but listen, putting out gross, history-based content isn't easy, and it requires a surprising amount of reading, research, and writing. I'm a one-woman show, and I really enjoy what I do, but it's hard to do it without support. So if you enjoy my content and you look forward to hearing more of it or want exclusive things like early access, behind-the-scenes videos, bonus content, and more, then consider supporting me on Patreon. There's a few levels of membership, including the top tier, cannibal level, of course, which also gives you the ability, by the way, to recommend topics for future episodes of the show. So do you love something super gross and you wanted to get the AF out treatment? Well, becoming a cannibal on the AF out Patreon will give you the ability to make that happen. So please consider supporting me at any level. It takes a lot of work to bring you these researched, mostly scripted history stories every other week on a Sunday, and I want to keep doing it forever, ideally, so your support can help make that happen. I really, really appreciate it. But let's get back to the topic of hand, which of course is cannibalism. In 1874, a man named Alfred Packer walked out of the San Juan Mountains of southwestern Colorado alone. The trouble was that he didn't enter the mountains alone. His five companions were missing. The bodies of five gold prospectors were later found dead, with clear evidence of both murder and cannibalism. Alfred Packer, it seemed, had killed and eaten his hiking companions. So today, we're going to take a look at the story of Alfred Packer, a man who was charged with killing and eating his five companions at the site of a massacre now known as the Cannibal Plateau. But modern-day evidence, combined with his own testimony, may suggest that Alfred did not go on the murder spree that he was accused of. So let's take a look at this fascinating case to try to get a sense of Alfred Packer, a gold prospector accused of murdering and eating his companions in the San Juan Mountains in the Colorado Rockies. Was this man a murderer? Was he a cannibal? As usual, I'm going to start off with the historical context. It helps and is fun to know what was going on in Colorado in 1874 that would explain why six men would walk into the mountains of southwest Colorado. Why were they there? Who were they? And how can it be that only one man would walk out alone having potentially murdered and eaten the rest? Now, if you haven't listened to my very first episode on the Donner Party, I encourage you to do so. It took place only a few decades before Alfred Packer's ordeal, 
but it's undeniably the more famous cannibal story to come out of the West in the 19th century, that's the 1800s. So go listen to that one if you haven't already, and then come back here. It'll get you in the right freedom mind. The Donna Party incident happened in the winter of 1846 to 1847, and less than 30 years later, we find ourselves with another case of survival cannibalism. At least that's what Alfred Packer claimed. So let's crack on with that context. Americans found themselves heading out west in the early 19th century, again, that's the 1800s. We bought the Louisiana Purchase from the French in 1803, which was more or less the middle chunk of the country. Once we got that, we started moving and exploring west from there. It was the idea of manifest destiny, the idea that white Americans were granted the divine authority to head west and claim the land for themselves, despite it, you know, already being populated by American Indians and also Mexicans. In case you didn't learn in school or forgot or were sleeping, a good chunk of the American Southwest was part of Spanish America and later Mexico until 1848 with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and the Gadsden Purchase, which happened a little bit later, 1853 to 1854. So starting before the U.S. actually owns the land, and then continuing until the 1860s was all that Oregon Trail stuff, right? People started moving west after hearing about lands, new opportunities, all that good stuff. There were certainly some tragedies, though, as the route out west was not well marked out. It's not like today, where you can just hop onto a paved highway, use GPS, and follow some basic directions. There were multiple routes, with lots of hazards, and the road conditions were poor. And also, there there weren't any actual roads. It was just wagon trails in the dirt. Again, go listen to the Donna Party episode, episode number one, if you want the absolute worst case scenario for how a trip out west during the Oregon Trail years can go wrong. But enough people are out in California by 1848 looking around for riches that they struck gold. Literally. In the Sacramento village of California, which is northern California for you non-geography buffs out there, some prospectors found gold nuggets in the American River at the base of the Sierra Nevada mountains. A prospector, by the way, is someone who searches for mineral deposits like gold or silver. Coincidentally, at the same time, no, seriously, like a month after finding gold, the U.S. was signing that Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which gave them California, which is really excellent timing. So anyway, confirmed gold out west. Awesome. As you can imagine, people start rushing out west as quickly as possible to get in on that sweet, sweet gold action. It was the California gold rush, and the peak years were from 1848 to 1855. But the gold was all mined out pretty quickly, so soon enough, people were searching for it in other places. If the American River out in California by Sacramento had gold, then other rivers out west must have some too, right? Makes sense. Well, in 1858, a prospector found some gold in Colorado, near Pikes Peak, which is a tall mountain peak only about 12 to 15 minutes west of Colorado Springs. It's like almost in the smack dab middle of Colorado. The Pikes Peak Gold Rush became the second big mass migration out west in search of gold, so you can imagine that all throughout the Colorado Rockies, prospectors were searching for their own little stashes of gold in mountain rivers, and eventually they started searching the San Juan Mountains. Now, the San Juans are in the southwest part of the state, and they are notorious for being harsh. It has a lot of tall, jagged peaks, canyons and pits, gorges, vertical rock walls. It's brutal. Gorgeous, of course, but hard to navigate especially in the winter, you could imagine. 
Though if you've learned anything other than cannibalism from the Donner Party episode, I've hoped you've learned that mountains in the winter are really, really dangerous. That's why, like I went over in my last episode on Mount Everest, people only climb Everest in a very small window of time, which is usually May, right? Or why it was so rough for the Uruguayan rugby team who had to spend weeks on top of a peak in the Andes waiting for the spring to come so that they could find a way out. That episode also had mountains and cannibalism in it. I think I'm finding my niche. Anyway, so you've got swarms of prospectors working their way over to the San Juan Range to find gold or maybe even silver. It was reported in 1873 that a huge load of silver could be found there, which promised to make people very, very rich. Our friend Alfred Packer and his companions would be one group of many to tackle the harsh terrain of the San Juans in the Colorado Rockies, but things did not go super well for them. Now, full disclosure here. In my research, I've seen this guy's name spelled as I'm saying it, Alfred, but I've also seen it written as Alfred, A-L-F-E-R-D. For consistency's sake, I'm going to keep saying Alfred, because that's what I read the most from the contemporary sources of the time. Like, for example, the transcript of the actual court case from 1883, which you can read in its entirety, by the way, that was very well publicized and, and still exists as a record. It says Alfred, right? So I'm just going to stick with that. Alfred, the alternative spelling, comes from a tattoo that he had on his arm from his army days, but it's more likely he just had a bad tattoo artist, and earlier in his life he was only vaguely literate. So I'm going to trust the court documents over the tattoo. It's a more credible source. Now, Alfred was living near Salt Lake City, Utah in 1873 when news of this potential San Juan silver mine broke out. He was a drifter, which means he moved from place to place a lot, looking for work, not really having a singular home base of sorts from which he operated. He was a Civil War veteran who fought for the Union, which was the North, for those of you who didn't pay attention in school, or maybe didn't go to school in the U.S. and didn't learn much about the Civil War. Now, unfortunately, Alfred also suffered from epilepsy. There wasn't a proper and easily accessible treatment for epilepsy in the mid-19th century. There was one from like the 1850s, but it wasn't great. Uh, so it went more or less untreated in Alfred's case. And it caused him even to be medically discharged from the army, and that is when he started drifting. Now Alfred, like the other 19th century drifters in search of a purpose in life, went out west. He did some gold prospecting in Colorado in the 1860s, including a dangerous position as, and I'm being 100% serious, a jackwhacker. A jackwhacker would lead the pack mules and the donkeys up the mountain trails with supplies on their backs. Jackwhacker. Now, he eventually drifted his way over to Utah, which is where he heard about the prospecting over in the San Juans. And on the way there, Alfred came across a larger group of prospectors, 21 of them, who were heading to the same place. They decided to let Alfred join along as he claimed that he had experience already in Colorado, right? And he would serve as a guide. The problem, though, was that the group was really poorly outfitted for the trip. It is super important to bring more than enough provisions, more than you need, more than you think you need, for a trip into the dangerous wilderness. Assume that everything's going to go wrong, and make sure you have enough supplies to survive and get out alive. That's, like, survival number one. Bring more than you need. The group, which, again, at this point has 21 men, they set out from Salt Lake City towards the San Juans, which is about a 400-mile journey, all right? And it became very clear early on that Alfred Packer was not the knowledgeable guide that he claimed that he was. According to some of the men in that initial group from Utah, Alfred was whiny, he was difficult, and he was even a thief. 
One man, Lautzenheiser is his name, who went by Lot, so I'm just going to call him Lot, said Alfred was, quote, willing to take things that did not belong to him, whether of any value or not. He would build up a fire, bake a great cake of bread bigger than a dinner plate, and sneak off with it under his coat to eat it because the other fellows jeered at him for his greediness. End quote. I mean, I like baking bread. If I baked bread over an open campfire, which does not sound like an easy thing to do, I'd probably want to eat it all myself too. But Alfred clearly had some mixed reviews. Some disliked him, but others didn't mind him. One guy, Bob McGrew, clearly felt sorry for him because of the epilepsy. He had a lot of epileptic fits during his time with these Utah prospectors. But I can imagine how some of them must have been feeling at this point, right? They're, they're all on this difficult journey to get to some really hard to traverse mountains. And the man who is supposed to be the guide has untreated epilepsy and also is apparently just a bad guide and probably lied about what he knew. They suffered through some difficult terrain on their way to Colorado, including some rivers they had to ford by dismantling their wagons and floating the pieces across. They were also almost out of supplies at this point and on the point of starvation. Don't get too excited yet, yo. We're not even close to the cannibalism part of this story. Now, when this group got almost to the edge of the San Juan Mountains, they encountered who we call the Utes, the American Indians who lived in the Colorado region. They called themselves the Nuchu, but we call them the Utes. The Utes were being pushed off their lands because of westward expansion. So they had to negotiate away a lot of their territory to those Manifest Destiny Americans who would go to war with them to claim it. But within the reservation, you can imagine, they were generally not too friendly with trespassers, fearing that they were there to take away more Ute land. You probably wouldn't be friendly with them either if the people who forced you off your lands just kind of showed up one day out of the blue, right? Now, Alfred Packer and the group had stumbled into a Ute reservation, but luckily for them, the Ute were satisfied that these men were just lost treasure hunters and even encouraged them to stay actually with them on the reservation until the spring because it was just too dangerous to head into the San Juans during the winter. Some of the trails would be covered by up to three feet of snow until the spring came. That's a lot. Five of the men decided they wanted to go anyway, growing restless, so they headed for a cow camp not too far away to the east, and among them was Lot, Lotzenheiser, the, the man who really, really didn't like Alfred. Alfred apparently didn't read the room and tried to go with them, <laughs> and Alfred was told, quote, if I saw him again after we passed the point of the mountain, there would be trouble. And as he was telling Alfred this, Lot was holding up a gun, so Alfred stayed behind. Lot and the other four did make it to that cow camp alive, by the way, but only barely. They were very much on the point of starvation. But Alfred Packer and five other guys decided to follow in Lot's footsteps. They just were not as successful. So let's take a quick look into the crew that set off with Packer into the wilds of the San Juan Mountains. There was Israel Swan, who was the oldest of the group. He was in his 60s. The youngest was a 16-year-old teenager named George Noon. Then there was a German butcher named Frank Miller, a guy from Philly named James Humphreys, and finally a Michigander named Shannon Bell. All men, by the way. Shannon is a guy's name, too. Now, much like Lot and his crew, Packer and these five guys could not be talked out of leaving the relative safety of the reservation until spring. The chief, Oray, did his best to give the men directions, which was, by the way, a straightforward route that did not go into the mountains, and all they could do was watch as Packer and these five guys head out east with two horses and a handful of supplies. 
They left on February 9th for the Los Pinos Indian Agency, which was about 25 miles south of the cow camp and Lot and his crew, that the, the cow camp that Lot and his crew traveled to. Los Pinos was a bigger outfit, though. It had a schoolhouse and a blacksmith and a sawmill and a stable and a warehouse, mess hall, agency building. Like, it was a legitimate settlement. The others, by the way, the ones who stayed behind at the reservation on Chief Ore's advice, they set out for the agency in the spring, and they made the trip safely and quickly in only two weeks. But Packer and his crew were too antsy, so they left in the middle of winter in February. There was snow everywhere, by the way, so they don't really know where they're going, they have no proper experience with the San Juan Mountains, and it's just five guys who barely even know each other. They're essentially strangers. And most of them didn't like Alfred Packer. Now, about two months later, alone, Alfred Packer stumbled into Los Pinos Indian Agency on April 16th, 1874. Obviously, an outsider needing help, several men from Los Pinos ushered him into the settlement and fed him. And when they asked about where he had come from and what had happened to him, this is the story he told. This is a quote from one of the men wintering at Los Pinos that year who relayed the information as part of a court testimony. Uh, Alfred had set out from the Ute camp two months earlier with, quote, five other men, and he had become snowblind and footsore, and they left him somewhere in camp with a few days' provisions while they was to go down and find the settlement and then come back for him. They had not come back, so he laid there some time and he struck out for himself and come to the agency, end quote. A few hours, hours, after Alfred arrived at Los Pinos, coincidentally, the rest of that original Utah crew from the Ute Reservation arrived on the same day. Isn't that crazy? Alfred was super agitated, of course, when they were all united because they started asking questions about the other five who were missing. Alfred was being real shifty, honestly, in his responses and just claimed he didn't know where the others were. He doesn't know anything, right? Alfred then decided that he was tired of Colorado, and he set off east for Pennsylvania with a few others looking to head that way as well, including a guy named Preston Nutter. Alfred sold or gave away a lot of his stuff to lighten the load, but Nutter also noticed that Alfred was in possession of the butcher, Frank Miller's, skinning knife. He had it because he was a butcher. Just, it's normal. But why would Alfred have Frank Miller's skinning knife if Frank Miller left him and abandoned him and Alfred was all alone, right? Alfred claims that Frank Miller stuck it in a tree and left it behind and so he took it, but it was certainly strange and Nutter started to sense that something weird happened between Alfred and the other five who were now missing. So when Alfred, Nutter, and the rest who joins them reached a small settlement town not too far away called Sawatch, it seems that Alfred had a lot of money to burn in town, which is great for the local economy, but Alfred was penniless when they originally left Utah to start this whole prospecting business in the first place in the San Juans. So first he's in possession of the German's skinning knife, and now he's got all this extra money that he didn't have before? I don't know. It's a little fishy. The story also wasn't adding up. Alfred was telling the saloon owner in Sawatch that he starved for weeks while lost out in the mountains, right? That he was surviving on nothing but rosebuds, he said. Rosebuds. But Alfred didn't look like a man who was half-starved to death only a few days ago. Sure, he was scraggly and unwashed, but not emaciated. Not someone who was starving alone in the mountains. Alfred must have gotten wind of people's suspicions because he spent a good chunk of the money that he had, mysteriously, on a horse and some supplies and prepared to leave town on his own. 
Everyone except the five men he went into the woods with, by the way, had made it from Utah to either Los Pinos or Sowatch, and Alfred was still claiming he had no idea what happened to them. Now, on May 1st, 1874, Alfred was still in town in Sowatch, but the head of Los Pinos Indian Agency, General Charles Adams, stopped by to rest up and get some supplies before heading over to Los Pinos, and he struck up a conversation with Alfred. Alfred regaled Adams and Adams' wife with the same story, which intrigued the general. If Alfred made it out alive on nothing but rosebuds, then surely the other five men could still be out there alive, probably doing the same thing, right? So General Adams went to talk to the saloon owner, where he learned about some of the rumors surrounding Alfred and his reappearance from the mountains. The local shopkeeper, Otto Mears, told him that, quote, Packer, who had no money when he parted from the Ute Reservation, seemed to be well supplied with that commodity, that he had shown things belonging to his companions, such as knives, and in that gambling and carousing, he had already spent a great deal of money at Sawatch. End quote. General Adams decided to head out to find these missing men, and he hired Alfred Packard as his guide. No, seriously, Alfred agreed to go out to find the missing men, knowing full well that they were dead. What a bad choice. It's like asking to get caught. So the next morning, May 2nd, General Adams, his wife, Packer, and Otto Mears, the shopkeeper, headed back out west for Los Pinos. And on the way, they ran into a few more of the original group that set out from Utah, so they stopped to catch up for a little bit. But Alfred made a mistake here. In retelling the same story that he'd been spouting up until that moment, he said something completely new. He told his former companions that the older guy from the group, Israel Swan, had died. Uh-oh, guys, he's changing his story. It's not good. Not good. When General Adams, his wife, Alfred, and Otto reached Los Pinos, the consensus among the original Utah group was that Alfred had killed the other men. General Adams decided to interrogate Alfred a bit more, particularly about where all of that money came from, because that was suspicious. And first, Alfred lied, saying that he didn't have any money. But when confronted with all the stuff that he bought from Otto Mears, who again was there with them, Alfred changed his story, saying that he borrowed the money from a blacksmith. Things are definitely not adding up, right? And Alfred Packer is digging himself a big old hole. After confronting Alfred with this lie, General Adams told him, quote, You might as well tell me the truth. I believe these men are dead, and you know something about it. If the matter is as I suspect, you are more to be pitied than blamed, but I wish to get the whole truth of this thing because I do not care to send out a party into the mountains to search for dead men. End quote. Alfred, knowing he was done for, responded after a while with, Well, it wouldn't be the first time that people had been obliged to eat each other when they were hungry. I'll tell you the whole story, but I'm afraid of the boys. Afraid of the retribution from the others is what he meant. Once assured that he would be safe and not killed or beaten up, he gave his version of what happened. So, here's Alfred's story. Very soon, after leaving the Ute Reservation, Alfred and the five prospectors knew that they didn't have enough food because they greatly misjudged how long it would take to get to their destination. Once they ran out of food, they scrounged around for frozen roots. But ten days after leaving the Ute Reservation, Israel Swan, the oldest of the group, died from starvation. The remaining five cut away chunks from his body, roasted them on a fire, and devoured them. Good old-fashioned survival cannibalism. Let's actually pause for a minute to review, again, what survival cannibalism is, in case you haven't watched some of my other episodes, or listened to my other episodes, 
or you just don't remember. Now, unlike ritual cannibalism, where parts of a human are consumed for medical, religious, spiritual, or cultural reasons, survival cannibalism is done as a last resort option for those who are stuck in the wilderness with no other food source. It's not typical for humans to go straight for human meat when there's other options available, right? That's kind of taboo. But when it's literally consume human flesh or die, many have opted to engage in survival cannibalism. I've gone over plenty of these stories on the podcast. The Donner Party, my first episode. Uruguayan Flight 571, which is episode 11. The Lost Franklin Expedition, right? Which I think was uh, maybe 9 or 10. It happens a lot more than you'd think, is my point. And although I'm giving you a second story of a Western expansion gone wrong that ended in cannibalism, Alfred Packer and the Donner Party are not the only two instances of this happening in this period of time in this part of the world. Before you go getting all, ew, gross, I'd never do that on me, you don't know what you would do in that situation where you have to either eat flesh or die. Remember what Nando Parado said in my episode on the Uruguayan rugby team where their plane crashed down in the Andes, most of them died up there, and the remaining only survived because of resorting to survival cannibalism. He said, quote, I know 100% of the people who are watching this program, they say, oh, I wouldn't have done it. But if you were there, you would have done it. End quote. So when Old Man Swan died, Alfred relates that they all set upon his body because they were all on the brink of starvation. Feast on flesh or die. They made some provisions out of Israel Swan's body and they carried on, leaving the remains of his body where he died. Right? They just kind of left him out in the snow. Four or five days later, James Humphrey from Philly also died. He, like Israel Swan, was butchered and eaten. Alfred admits that he stole $133 from James Humphrey's wallet. This, by the way, would be over $3,000 today. They left Humphrey's body where he died and they carried on. Alfred continues with his story, saying that a few days later, he went out to find firewood. And when he came back, German butcher Frank Miller had been murdered by the teenager, the 16-year-old George Noon, and also Shannon Bell, the guy from Michigan. Alfred said that they killed him because his rheumatism, his arthritis, was slowing down the party too much. And the three remaining men, Alfred, Moon, and Bell, carved up the butcher's body and ate what they could. They left the remains behind and then carried on. A few days later, Alfred said that Shannon Bell shot the teenager George Newton, and then Alfred and Shannon Bell ate their young companion and carried on. The two remaining men, Bell and Alfred, made a promise not to kill each other and eat each other for food. But that didn't last long, apparently, because according to Alfred Packer, quote, Bell arose, taking his rifle, aimed a blow with the butt end at me. The blow missed, and the stock, striking a tree, broke off, end quote. Packer, in self-defense, killed Shannon Bell, ate parts of him for sustenance, carried some of the flesh with him as he finished the trek to Los Pinos, cooking it as he went, and when he arrived, he'd only just finished his supply of food. So, long story short and simplified, the six men were unprepared for this difficult trek through several feet of snow. A lot of them died along the way and were consumed to help the others survive, but it quickly delved into murder until the only one left was Alfred Packer, who had to kill Shannon Bell in self-defense. Okay, that is, that is quite the story, right? A lot of details that Alfred Packer gave there. So what's General Adams to do with this confession? Well, of course, he can't just take it at face value. He needs to do some investigating. First, he has Alfred recite his confession again to some of the others. Otto Mears, the shopkeeper from Sawatch, as well as some of the original Utah group, 
who were still in Los Pinos. I guess the logic here was to A, see if the story was identical the second time through, and B, get a sense for whether or not the other men who knew the deceased would believe the story. Like, does it fit in with what they know about these guys who died? General Adams wrote the gist of the confession down and had Alfred Packer sign it. Here's the text of that confession. Old man Swan died first and was eaten by the other five persons about ten days out from camp. Four or five days afterward, Humphreys died and was also eaten. He had about $133. I found the pocketbook and took the money. Sometime afterwards, while I was carrying wood, the butcher was killed, as the other two told me accidentally, and he was also eaten. Bell shot Noom with Swan's gun and I killed Bell, shot him, I covered up the remains and took a large piece along, then traveled 14 days into the agency. Bell wanted to kill me with his rifle, struck a tree, broke his gun. Okay. General Adams believed this in part because it matched up with what he already knew about Alfred Packer, that he came to Los Pinos looking relatively healthy, not on the brink of starvation, right? And he had all of that money. And he also assumed that any oddness came from the fact that he ate human flesh, which kind of messes up your psyche and your mental state. But the others, the prospectors from Utah and Otto Mears from Sawatch, not so convinced. One of them was a friend of Shannon Bell, or at least had become a friend with him over the course of their journey together, and he argued that Bell never would have killed the others, like the butcher Frank Miller, nor would he have engaged in survival cannibalism. But that guy wasn't there, honestly, so it doesn't carry a lot of weight, to be honest. You don't know what you're going to do in a survival situation unless you're actually in it, right? So, But another man brought up the fact that Alfred originally said that he found Frank Miller's knife, that, that skinning blade, jammed into a tree, but that was a lie. If Alfred lied originally with that first story that he gave, who's to say he's not lying now? But you know what? Alfred's story should be easily verifiable, right? He says the bodies were left where they died, so they should be found in the same places. I mean, maybe some animals got to them a little bit, but for the most part, they'd be able to corroborate the story if they could find the bodies in the same place. Alfred also claimed, remember, that Shannabelle attempted to shoot him, missed, and hit a tree, so they could go find that tree to see if the evidence lines up with the story, right? Easy. Alfred Packer, in his infinite wisdom, agreed to guide a search party back to where Shannabelle's body was supposed to have been found. If the scene looked as Alfred described it, then that should satisfy everyone that his confession was truthful. So several men from the original Utah group, along with some others and Alfred Packer, went back into the wilderness to look for the bodies of Shannon Bell and the others. One man, constable named Herman Lauder, was brought along to keep an eye on Alfred Packer because the man was accused of murder and cannibalism, so it would be best to watch out for him in case he got violent, right? Or in the case that the others wanted to kill him for what he had potentially done, what he was being accused of. So fair enough. But Louder, in his testimony at court, said that he noticed Alfred still had the butcher, Frank Miller's, skinning knife on him. And when Louder demanded to have it, because you've got an accused criminal here with a weapon, uh, Alfred rushed at him with the knife. Louder managed to wrestle it off him, subdue him, and march him onwards. But that was incredibly suspicious. As Alfred led the others close to the supposed massacre site, he started getting real shifty. He suddenly claimed that he had no idea where he was and refused to go any further. The rest, of course, therefore made the assumption that Alfred was just lying, that he killed the men, he knew the crime scene wouldn't match his story, and he should be hanged for it. They were over his BS at this point. Alfred was sent back to Los Pinos and later Sawatch, and he was placed in sheriff's custody in jail until the other men could finish their investigation. 
I mean, to be fair, Alfred was acting super suspicious, right? I don't blame the others for jumping to the conclusion that he was the killer. He's acting weird, and he never got along with the others from the beginning. He's lied a lot about what happened. He's just, frankly, acting really guilty. Now, the search party does eventually find Alfred's camp. They noted that it was clearly inhabited for a long period of time. They found a shelter made of bark built up against a tree, or a lean-to, right? And in front of this lean-to was the remains of a campfire, but one that took effort to build. There were flat rocks there to make it more like a fireplace instead of just a basic circle of stones. There was even a small path that led away from the camp into the woods, likely used for going to the bathroom. So it appeared that whoever stayed there, whether it was just Alfred Packer or some of the others, Whoever it was, they were here for a while. They also found a little pillbox at the site, which pointed them to Alfred Packer, who was, after all, an epileptic. What was missing from the scene was Shannon Bell's body, and the broken rifle that Bell had attempted to use to murder Alfred Packer. If Alfred was telling the truth, then Bell's body would have been there. The search party turned their attention to a nearby lake. Perhaps Alfred had thrown bodies or evidence in there, right? So they drained the lake by removing a beaver's dam, and they dredged it for weeks trying to find something, but unfortunately they found nothing. Meanwhile, Alfred Packer is sitting back in jail in self-watch. His story and his confession had reached newspapers by that point, so his confession was published, and of course, the news was sensationalized, even claiming that Alfred preferred the taste of human meat to the, quote, ordinary fare of civilized and Christian people. They even claimed that Packer said human meat, particularly the breast, was the sweetest meat he had ever tasted. Gross. Side note, uh, total tangent here. Though he likely never said this because, you know, news and sensationalism, yellow journalism, he would not have been the only person in history to say something like this about the sweet meats. Albert Fish, serial killer who killed and eight young children in the 1920s in Westchester County, New York, wrote the following in a letter that he sent to the mother of the little girl that he killed and consumed. I'm going to read some of the letter, and a trigger warning, it's really, really disturbing. Quote, On Sunday, June the 3rd, I called on you and we had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to kill her. I choked her to death then cut her in small pieces so I could take the meat to my rooms. Cook and eat it. How sweet and tender her little butt was, roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. End quote. Seriously, he wrote and sent that letter to the mother of the little girl that he killed and ate. What a psychopath. And there was a lot more in that letter as well, by the way, including a whole tangent in the beginning, talking about how a friend of his was also a cannibal, had consumed the meat of little boys and girls in China, told Albert all about how the backsides were the sweetest part of the body, and how to prepare the meat. And that got Albert Fish thinking, boy, howdy, do I want to try that for myself. Oof, so gross tangent there, but hearing about Alfred Packer saying that human meat is sweet, it, it really reminded me of that story. Sorry, but not sorry if that made you sick, by the way. You should know what you signed up for. The name of this episode is The Cannibal Plateau. Anyways, eventually, the bodies of the five dead and partially consumed bodies were found, but by someone else later on, and not part of the original search party. There were a few stories that came out claiming different guys found the bodies in different ways, but elements of the stories are similar enough. Here's essentially how they were found. Two miles north of Lake San Cristobal, in a densely shaded spruce grove, the corpses of five men were clustered together at the bottom of a bluff, 
which is a steep shoreline that dives down into the water, right? The men who discovered the bodies called for help from a local mining camp. Four bodies were laying close together, but there were five there, covered in blankets. One was partially uncovered, probably due to the wind, and it was clear, just on the initial inspection, that chunks of flesh were missing from the corpse's thigh. Upon closer examination after taking the blankets off, some of them were just reduced to spinal columns, rib cages, and leg bones, and there were bearded heads still sitting on top of the pile of bones. The scene was even sketched by an amateur sketch artist and published in the October 17th edition of Harper's Weekly. It was also apparent, from looking at the bodies, that the four lying close together had all been hit in the head with a hatchet. The one slightly separated from the rest had been shot and his head was missing. They did eventually find it, but like years later. Some of the original Utah prospectors were called in, and though the bodies were pretty decomposed and nasty by that point, they could tell from the clothes and whatever features remained that those bodies were, in fact, the bodies of their missing friends. They were buried side by side on top of the bluff where they were found, and the site earned the nickname the Cannibal Plateau. Still called that today, you can go and visit. Now, based on how the bodies were found, this did not jive with Alfred Packer's version of the events. So clearly, Alfred was lying about everything. But at least he's already in jail, right? Right? Well, no. <laughs> he was in jail in Sofwatch, but he had escaped. Otto Mears and another man named John Lawrence had let him go. Lawrence claimed, quote, Otto Mears come to me and talked the matter over in regard to Packer. This was our conclusion. We were a young, poor county. It cost four or five dollars a day to keep Packer. We had no evidence that the men were dead or that Packer had done anything wrong. We agreed to turn Packer loose. In a day or so after, the sheriff went down to Del Norte, and after nightfall, Packer was given provisions and turned loose. End quote. So a warrant was signed for Alfred Packer's arrest for the murders of the elder Israel Swan, the teenager George Noon, butcher Frank Miller, James Humphrey, and Shannon Bell. And he was to be brought in dead or alive. The relatives of the five dead men put up a reward for Alfred's capture, and there might have even been a bounty already on Alfred's head for a triple murder that he may or may not have done prior to this whole situation, but either way, he was a wanted man. But he wouldn't be caught for nine years. In 1883, one of the guys from the original Utah prospecting party, a man named John Frenchy Cabazon, had made his way up to Fort Fetterman in Wyoming. There, he went into the local bar and met a man calling himself John Swartz, and the two struck up a conversation. John Swartz didn't recognize his new drinking buddy, but Frenchy certainly recognized him because it was Alfred Packer. The next day, Frenchy went to the local sheriff and reported John Swartz to be, quote, long-lost man-eater Alfred Packer. What a title, long-lost man-eater. When the authorization to arrest John Swartz came back to the sheriff's office, the drifter had already moved over to Wagon Hound Creek, which is about 30 miles west, but they did manage to pin him there before he disappeared, and he was promptly arrested. It didn't take long to confirm that John Swartz was, in fact, Alfred Packer, and after nine years, he was finally back in custody, ready to answer for the crimes of murder and cannibalism. And once brought back behind bars, he gave his second confession, which, by the way, was vastly different from the first one that he gave. Here's the second story. I'm not directly quoting it because it's long, but it's paraphrased. So when Packer and the other five prospectors left the Ute Reservation, they only had about seven days' worth of food for one person. So not enough food for six people. 
they encountered storms, mountains, snow so deep that they were barely moving. They ran out of food pretty early on and were surviving on rosebuds and pine gum, which is the sap that they got from pine trees. He estimates about 10 days of eating nothing but pine gum and rosebuds. When they got to the main range of the San Juans, they camped on a stream near a lake and they're like, great, a lake, let's go fishing. So they tried some ice fishing, but they didn't find anything, of course. The ice was thin and a few men even fell into it. So they're cold, they're tired, they're hungry, they're shivering, they're running out of energy. They're crying at this point, and they're worried about dying up here in the mountains. Alfred claims that Israel Swan, the older guy, right? He gave him his rifle and asked him to go higher up into the mountains and scout a way out. He was, remember, supposedly a guide. Supposedly, Alfred Packer knew this area. So Alfred went out, and he spent the whole day out doing some reconnaissance. But when he came back at night, Shannon Bell, he said, was all red-faced and crazy, eating a piece of meat that was cut from the German butcher's body because of course it was the butcher who provided the meat first. His skull had been crashed in with a, with a hatchet, and the other three were laying near the fire with cuts in their forehead all dead. As Alfred approached the fire, not seeing the bodies right away, Shannon Bell got up and tried to attack him with the hatchet that he had apparently used to kill all the other people. And Alfred, in self-defense, shot him through the belly. Shannon Bell fell forward on his face, Alfred picked up the hatchet and finished the job by chopping into the guy's head. So now Shannon Bell, threat neutralized. The next morning, Alfred tried to leave, but the snow had gotten too deep, and it even covered his tracks from yesterday's reconnaissance mission up to the top of the mountain. So he built a lean-to, the one that they found, set up that fancy new fireplace, and roasted some meat to stay alive. He tried to get out the next day, but he couldn't because of the storms and the deep snows, so he apparently lived in that camp for about 60 days, eating the meat of his five dead traveling companions to stay alive. When he was able to leave, he brought some of that meat with him, and he hiked out, he took whatever money he could find on the bodies, and he carried on toward Los Pinos. He ate the last little bit of meat just before arriving. When Alfred was questioned as to why this confession was so different from the first one, he got agitated, saying that he was not himself when he was first arrested, that in fact he was crazed, and he can't be held responsible for what he said. But that's not how the law works, so didn't go well for Alfred Packer in court. The newspapers, predictably, went nuts, right? After all, as one outlet put it, he was, quote, the fiend who deliberately fell upon and butchered his five companions and for several weeks lived on flesh cut from their bones, end quote. He was called putrid packer, captured cannibal, man-eating murderer, the human hyena, lots of fun alliteration. The Denver Republican wrote these headlines, I like these, human jerked beef, <laughs> the man who lived on meat cut from his murdered victims. The fiend who became very corpulent, which means fat, upon a diet of human steaks. A cannibal who gnaws on the choice cuts of his fellow man. <laughs> Those are awesome headlines, that's great. Now Packer, of course, was eviscerated by the press, pun intended. And it was bad enough having to openly admit to cannibalism, but the fact that he lied in his first confession, escaped prison, was on the run for nine years, and then changed his story when caught did not do him any favors. He was now claiming that Shannon Bell killed everyone, and he only killed Bell in self-defense. He did have to engage in survival cannibalism, he wasn't hiding that fact, but otherwise he would have died, right? So he wasn't hiding the, the fact that he was a one-time cannibal, 
but he was protesting his innocence of the five murders, saying it was just self-defense of that one guy and that Bell killed the rest. But at that point, honestly, it was just too late. He was quickly condemned by the press, by the court, by his peers, not just the ones in the jury, but also like literally everybody else who knew him. He was seen as a cold, calculated liar. A man that did know the mountains near San Juan, like he said, and used that knowledge to bring the other five prospectors out there, out of their element, and kill them for their money. Then, all of Alfred's actions came back to bite him. Remember, he was disliked by a majority of that original Utah group and the people he met in Sahuach, uh, so they all spoke out against him. His initial confession that he gave to General Adams and then some others afterwards, only to be changed nine years later, made him look like a liar. And then, when Alfred and some others went to go find the bodies, right, and Alfred rushed louder with that skinning knife, he was painted as a violent man. And remember that he broke out of jail and so watch, so he was labeled as someone who knew he was guilty. Everything was stacking up against him. When Alfred went up to the stand to give his defense, he gave a long speech recounting his entire life story from how he ended up in Utah in the first place to being caught in Wyoming nine years later at the Cannibal Plateau. Remember, you can read all of this. The whole transcript of this court case exists. Now, when he told the court what happened, it was very similar to his second confession, that Bell killed everyone, tried to kill him, and in self-defense, Alfred shot him. Of course, he was ruthlessly cross-examined, and the general consensus was that Packer was guilty. And that's how the trial ended as well. Alfred Packer was found guilty of premeditated murder. He was sentenced to death by hanging to occur on May 19th, 1883. Hey, that's my dad's birthday. Happy birthday, dad. May 19th, 1883, but less than a week before his execution date, an appeal was granted and he was given a stay of execution. But in a strange turn of events, the murder statutes had changed back in 1874, which is the year the murders happened, and he could not actually be tried for murder based on that simple technicality. Colorado could not sentence a man to death for committing a crime before Colorado officially became a state as opposed to a territory. Colorado became a state in 1876. So he was let off on a technicality and spared the death penalty. They couldn't try him again for the same trials. So in a second trial, he was instead charged and convicted with five counts of voluntary manslaughter and sentenced to 40 years in prison, which was the max at the time. It was eight years per man max at the time. He was paroled though in 1901, after serving only 18 years of that sentence. He lived a relatively normal life, got a job somehow, even though he was mega famous for being a cannibal, and died six years later in 1907. Now in more recent years, there are those who are unconvinced that Alfred Packer did kill those five men. If we go off of just his second confession, and by what he said at court, right, he only killed Shannon Bell in self-defense. So in 1989, a George Washington law, uh, University law professor named James Stars decided to engage in some forensic science to find the remains of the five men buried hastily on the edge of the bluff and Cannibal Plateau and see what evidence could be gleaned from what remained, right? If, he was, if they were hit with a hatchet, you would see those marks in the skull. If there were bullet holes, right, those would still be in bone. And without going into too much detail, Stars came to the conclusion that Alfred still may have bludgeoned two of the men in their sleep, and then as the other three woke, he shot them in the hip to incapacitate them, and then killed them with a hatchet and ate them for survival. So it was still possible, after his investigation, that Alfred murdered all five. But it's not conclusive. It could have still been Bell. 
1994, a historian at the Museum of Western Colorado named David Bailey, he went a step further to get more conclusive evidence, this time tied to a gun that was reported to have been recovered from the scene and was in a, in a museum. In his investigations, Bailey concluded that the gun and a new eyewitness report that turned up actually supported Alfred's claim that Bell killed everyone, and in turn, Alfred Packer killed Bell in self-defense. They did, like, a gunshot residue on the clothes of Bell's body, and they were able to match it. It's crazy. It's good stuff, right? But to this day, we still don't really know. It's not a 100% shut case one way or another. Was Alfred Packer a murderer and cannibal? Possibly. Definitely a cannibal. He copped up to that. But we'll never really know whether or not he murdered everyone, or if Shannon Bell went crazy and hatcheted everyone to death. But in the story of Alfred Packer, it's become enmeshed with legend, right? I think the most famous adaptation of the story, at least in my opinion, is Matt Parker and Trey Stone's Cannibal the Musical. came out in the mid-90s. And if you don't immediately recognize those names, they're the geniuses behind South Park, Team America World Police, the Book of Mormon Broadway play, right? And so much more. To this day, evidence has only turned up the proof that Shannon Bell was shot and the others were hatcheted. Who did it and why are questions that are just lost to history. Was he a murderer who duped these men into the mountains to kill them? Or was he harshly judged by his peers from the beginning, suffering from the stigma of having epilepsy and being unjustly condemned for being different and unliked? There's no way to know for sure. But what we do know is that Alfred Packer, stuck in the snows of the San Juan Mountains in 1874, did have to eat his traveling companions to survive and was forever labeled a monster and a cannibal as a result. Thank you for joining me in this episode of A Popular History of Unpopular Things. My name is Kelly Beard, and I hope you've enjoyed the story of the Cannibal Plateau. Thank you for supporting my podcast, and if you haven't already checked out my other episodes, go have a listen. If you like freezing cold hikes with certain death and a good helping of cannibalism, go listen to my first episode of The Donna Party. If you just want death on mountains with no cannibalism, listen to the episode before this one on Mount Everest, Rainbow Valley. Please, please also consider supporting me on Patreon. If you like the story and look forward to hearing more, then join today as a historian or an adventurer or even the top tier cannibal level. You'll get exclusive benefits for joining. It really supports me, helps me do what I do, and I would really appreciate it. Be sure to follow my podcast, available wherever you listen, so you know when new episodes are dropped. And stay tuned to get more episodes of a popular history of unpopular things. <laughs>